0: got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're still looking at the subject of reconnect. So let's stand as we open the Word of God together. 2 Samuel chapter 9. I want to speak on the subject of invited by grace. And it's amazing how this passage, even though I did not originally plan this, this passage um, connects... The whole concept of the King's Dynasty with the subject we're looking at uh, over a few Sundays here, reconnect that many of us need to experience a, a reconnect when it comes with our walk with God or perhaps even our walk with others. Uh, chapter nine, Second Samuel found your place. If you haven't, it's right after first Samuel. Some of you figured that out. David asked, Is there anyone remaining from Saul's family that I can show kindness to because of Jonathan? There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba, or Ziba. They summoned him to David. The king said to him, Are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, Is there anyone left in Saul's family I can show the kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, There is still Jonathan's son, who is lame in both feet. The king asked him, Where is he? Ziba answered the king, You'll find him in Lodabar, at the house of Machir, son of Amiel. So King David had him brought from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, bowed down to the ground, and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness Because of your father Jonathan, I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. Bhibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? The king then summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and to his family, you and your sons and your servants are to work the ground for him, and you are to bring in the crops so that your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson is always to eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do all my lord the king command. So Mephibosheth ate at the king or at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Father, I thank you for this great text that shows us what grace is all about. Thank you for the gracious invitation to come and dine at the king's table. Now help us to understand what that can mean to every one of us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Invited by grace. What does that mean? Many years ago in the first part of the last century, Mayor LaGuardia of New York decided he was going to relieve a night court judge in 1935. He was going to relieve him and handle the minor cases that would come before him that night. And... Before him eventually stood an elderly lady. This lady had been charged with stealing a loaf of bread. Seems like a simple thing. But she was from the poorest part of New York. It was an area that had extensive crime and when the case was brought against her, it was said that, Mayor, if we let her go, we will send a message that people can continue to get away with theft in this poor community. And so the mayor was faced with this dilemma, and he looked at this elderly lady and he said, "I have to punish your crime. That is the only just thing to do." But then he proceeded after he said, "I fine you ten dollars," which nineteen thirty five was a lot of money. He said, "Some of you are like, yes, yeah, a lot of money today." Um, he said, I find you $10. And then he proceeded to take out his wallet, pull out a $10 bill, and hand it to the lady. And he said, Not only do I find her $10, which I'm providing for her to pay, but because there are so many of you in this courtroom that have done nothing to help people like her, but only look out for yourself, because no one, th- this elderly lady who stole a loaf of bread, it turned out that she had grandchildren that she was looking out for. Not that it justified it because the king still fined her, but he said, because none of you have done anything about the impoverished condition, so many of you who could have done something to help her have done nothing to help her. I find everyone in the courtroom 50 cents. All the law enforcement officers, all the attorneys, as well as those who were just in there observing court began to reach in their pockets and pull out 50 cents. And the lady left the courtroom that day. Having been justly fined, But having had the judge pay that fine, and not only that, she walked away with $47.50 to take care of her needs in the weeks to come. That's a picture of grace. A judge that demands justice but says, I will send my son to pay the fine. Last last week I kind of left off with that subject of justice and the emphasis in the world today on social justice and everyone demanding social justice. We cry out for justice, a justice that we don't understand, when our greatest need is not justice, but grace. And the just judge and our loving Savior make sure that the demand for justice and the cry for grace can both be answered at the same time. And you say, how can that happen? And it happens on a cross. And that is a picture. The covenant, the blood covenant we have with Jesus Christ is pictured in the relationship between David and Jonathan so much that it would... Saved the life of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. The power of grace to reconnect us to God and others is no better illustrated than in this story. David is king of Israel now. His dynasty is well established. And he's establishing a lineage for Messiah. Jeremiah 23 says that the Lord, our righteousness, will come through this line of David, this dynasty of David. But David in many ways serves as a type, a picture of Christ in the Scriptures. And in this case, he kind of moves from a picture of Christ's love to a picture of the Father and allowing Jonathan in some ways to picture the covenant love and the covenant relationship that God has with us through Christ. Of course, the first king of Israel was Saul. Things didn't quite work out as he was not faithful to his calling. God anointed through the prophet Samuel David to be the next king who served Saul at first. And while he was serving in Saul's court, he became best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. In fact, Jonathan actually saved David from Saul on numerous occasions. He saved David's very life. And in doing so, and, and through establishing their, their friendship, I believe there, there was a principle that Solomon would write later, David's son would write later write about, that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There was a covenant relationship that was eventually established between David and Jonathan. Now, when we get to this text, Saul and Jonathan are dead. David is king. Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, has been rescued he was crippled, he was hiding out, but he's the only living descendant of Jonathan. And when we look at what happens in his life, and we think about what God has done in our life, there are three glorious parallels between the reconnection of Mephibosheth and the king's dynasty, King David's dynasty, and our reconnection with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace that made us that royal priesthood, that holy nation, God's own special people. And here's here's the first one. I want us to see the condition of Mephibosheth. It was a condition that led to a desperate isolation in his life. In verse 1, we see that he was of Saul's family. But Saul has been dethroned. Not only that, Saul, his grandfather, and Jonathan, his father, are now dead. And they can do absolutely nothing for Mephibosheth. When we think about our relationship with God, it is not because of who our parents are who our grandparents are. We're not Christian. We're not born again because Mama was godly, because Grandma was godly. We have to have our own rescue with the King. We have to have our own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In verse 3 it said, He was crippled in both feet. That would have been considered having been rendered useless in those days, incompetent, not able to offer anything. He was now, in verse 4, abiding in the town of Lo Debar. The Hebrew word lo has to do with no, nothing. <laughs> the word Debar, that part of the word, has to do with fruit. Sometimes it referred to pasture. So this was a desolate place of no fruit or no pasture. In fact, sometimes it was used to refer Because of pasture, uh, the phrase load a bar meant no livestock. So there was this place of desolation, of isolation, a place of limited resources, this lame man who could do nothing about his condition, and it pictures us in our relationship, or the absence of a relationship, in our depravity separated from God. Isolated in the middle of nowhere with nothing And there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. We can't be good enough. We can't be fruitful in and of our own strength. That's where this, we might call son of Adam, like we are in Adam, finds himself. Paul describes our spiritual situation much like this in Ephesians chapter 2. We started looking at this last week as well. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the, this worldly age, according to the ruler of the atmospheric domain. That means when we're born, we're part of a dynasty already, but it's a defeated dynasty. It's the, the devil's dynasty. It's the sin-fallen dynasty. And he says, so you're part of this, this domain of darkness, this, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and by nature we were children under wrath, as others were also. We were born, we were sinners by nature, we were sinners by choice, separated from God, not a part of the king's dynasty. That's the spiritual condition. When you get to the second part of this, hold your place there in Ephesians, we're going to come back to it, we'll see what God did about that. Not only that, Mephibosheth, 15 years early, had missed out on an opportunity because when David was looking for someone to bless, Ziba didn't exactly help him out. It was kind of, we don't know if we can trust, perhaps even his legs were broken so that he wouldn't be considered a threat to the king so that it might save his very own life. Where David had this covenant that we'll talk about in a second with Jonathan, Mephibosheth was missing out on it because someone with good intentions was saying, you can't trust the king right now. He could take your life. And if you're not careful, you'll have people in your life like that who will say, you can't trust God. Don't give your life to him. You can't trust those people down at that church. You can't trust the Bible. And we have to come to a place in our life where we say, you know what, I'm not listening to those people. I'm going to listen to the people who Tell me, I need to be a part of the king's dynasty. I need a relationship with Jesus Christ. I need to be a part of a local church. I need to get in on what God has for me. And I have no other alternative but to trust God. When everybody began to abandon Christ and his earthly ministry, Jesus looked at his disciples and he says, Are you going to leave me also? And Peter said, To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have no other options but the one true living God, the King Jesus Sometimes we feel like that one who's left out, like Mephibosheth. We feel like we're in an isolated place in life. We're physically or spiritually or emotionally defeated, and we can't do anything about it. That we can't be a part of anything special. That we can't be a part of anything victorious, anything prosperous, anything that's going to last, anything that's meaningful. we're We're kind of like that kid. We feel like the kid, when they choose teams, you know, remember that they would throw you the Uh, You have two captains to play ball and they throw the baseball bat and you grab the bat and you kind of see who's holding the top of the bat. Remember that? Then they begin to pick teams and you're sitting there wondering, will I get picked? Some of you didn't worry about that. I did from time to time. Uh, Am I going to get picked? Am I going to get to play today? Am I going to be a part of the team? Or will I get picked by the right team? Will I get picked by the winning team? Mephibosheth was like that. Spiritually, we are like that. He reminds us of the depravity of the lost person, the person who does not know Christ, who can't do anything about it, but needs somebody to intervene on his behalf. Or perhaps he reminds us of the vulnerability of the saved person who is out of fellowship with God, who was once a picture of what it meant to be in fellowship with the king, but has drifted out to an isolated place, has begun walking in the flesh and found himself powerless to do anything, Because we can only be defeated in the flesh. Well, that's not a great parallel. is it? It's not a place we want to find ourselves. So let's look at the next parallel. The second one is this. There's a covenant between friends. A covenant between friends which led to what I would call a dutiful inquiry. It was David's very duty. It was his responsibility to ask this question. His question in verse 1. Is there anyone remaining in Saul's family, that I can show kindness because of Jonathan. It reflects a covenant faithfulness, a responsibility. It was something his character as king demanded that he seek out. Is there anyone in Jonathan's family? You say, well, why? Well, if you go back to 1 Samuel, hold your place here in 2 Samuel, but But flip with me back to 1 Samuel, and you'll see a little bit of what we're talking about here. In 1 Samuel chapter 18. See, see we're just kind of looking at the rest of the story, unless we go back to chapter 18. David, Jonathan, best friends. Jonathan has saved his life. Things are not going so well for the, the Saul line and Saul's dynasty. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as he loved himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his military tunic, and then his sword, his bow, and his belt. That was the picture of a covenant relationship. Those were symbols of, of the blood covenant that was being established between David and Jonathan. In chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, beginning with verse 12, By the Lord, the God of Israel, if I sound out my father by the time tomorrow or the next day and I find out that he is favorable towards you and I do not send send for you and tell you, then may God punish Jonathan and do so severely. If my father intends to bring evil on you, then I will tell you and I will send you away and you will go in peace. May the Lord be with you just as he was with my father. If I continue to live, treat me with the Lord's faithful love. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your faithful love from my household, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Jonathan saw something was good happening in the life of David, that David's kingdom would last. Jonathan then made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. This was not any kind of perverted love, but a love between friends, a love between two men to establish a covenant relationship because they had already been looking out for one another in their youth and this would continue for generations. Even after the death of Jonathan, David was saying, we are in this covenant relationship and I'm looking out for you. In chapter 24, we also see Saul asking David some some sense of of restoration to their relationship before Saul's death. Please don't cut off my generations from the, the face of the earth. See, covenants were a big deal. Today, we don't speak of covenants. We speak of contracts. Business contracts and marriage contracts. But covenants were big deals. And you didn't break a covenant. Most of them had signs or symbols. In fact, in Scripture, when God establishes covenant, there's always a sign or a symbol to go with that covenant. We might think of the Noahic covenant. When when God promised Noah he wouldn't flood the earth again, he put a rainbow as a sign in the sky. And now that's been used for all kinds of perverted and, and twisted for other purposes. But God put it as a sign in the sky that he would not destroy the world by water again. When God established the covenant with Moses, it was... Uh, the sign of circumcision when he established the new covenant. I believe baptism is a sign, a symbol of that covenant relationship with God. The symbols of the covenant that we read about in chapter 18 of, uh, uh, of 1 Samuel, the exchange of robe had to do with, with the position of the covenant. The, the garments, the, um, the the military tunic, had to do with with the possessions. The sword had to do with the power. Those things were being relayed. Everything that was Jonathan's was David's, and everything that was David's was becoming Jonathan's. Historians and other Bible scholars tell us that there were seven ceremonial acts to what was called a blood covenant, and that these two acts that we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 18 were the first two acts of the seven ceremonial acts. So many believe that there was this, this type of blood covenant. The third and fourth had to do with something that we might seem... Uh, we might think would think would seem really weird, really strange, or really sick. It is something that we might uh, think about the kind of the blood brother relationship of the Native Americans. But they would they would cut a place on their arms, forearms, or near their wrist, and they would lock arms, a symbolism of of like today we would have a handshake. But they would even let their own blood mingle and they would make sure that there was a scarring there so that anytime time they saw that scar, they would be reminded of the blood covenant, the relationship. Steps uh, 5 through 7 always included a meal or perhaps a sharing of a name and a building of some type of monument so that when they saw that monument, they would be reminded again of the covenant. David never forgot the covenant relationship. And perhaps... He even had scarring on his own arm to remind him of that blood covenant. The covenant relationship between David and Jonathan. There are scars today on the wrists of the Lord Jesus to remind us that we have a covenant relationship that He has never forsaken. That when we come to Him by faith, putting our trust in Him, then the atoning death of Christ invites us to the king's table. so We have a covenant relationship between David and Jonathan, and it was his duty to say, is there anyone? Is there anyone? Look at verse 1 again. Any, he doesn't say, well, is there a certain one of his descendants that's living? He said, is there anyone, any of Jonathan's descendants? In Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, it says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's God saying, is there anyone who would be willing to come to me I will in no wise cast them out because My Son has scarring on His very body where He gave His life and His life blood that that blood might cover the sins of the world. Is there anyone who would come to the King's table? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, is there anyone who would come and enter into that covenant relationship by faith? That leads us to the third parallel, the compassion of a king that led to this divine invitation. See, this is where grace comes in. This is one of my favorite words in all of the Bible. It's the word kessed in Hebrew. It's translated kindness here, loving kindness in some places, tender mercies in other places. That word kessed really combines two if you were to try to find the best Greek equivalent in the New Testament, you would take the words agape, God's unconditional love. He loves us not because of who we are, but He loves us in spite of who we are. He loves us because it's His very character and His nature to love. You take that word agape and you take the Greek word charis, which happens to be my daughter's name, you take the Greek word charis for grace, God's unmerited favor, that he would lavish his love on us and put all that together. It's in this word "kessed" here. In verse one, he says, Can I, can I show someone kessed for Jonathan's sake? In verse three, anyone of Saul's family that I can show this kessid, this, this kindness of God, this grace to. And then again in verse 7, the Word shows up again, and once again it tells us that it is for Jonathan's sake. See, the Father has extended an invitation to us to experience not only eternity in heaven at the King's table, but He's extended an invitation to us to have an abundant life in the here and now for in John chapter 10, in verse 10, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The Father offers that not because of who we are, not because I can be good enough, not because I can get the things in my life straightened out. You know, one day I'm going to get it all together. When I get it all together, I'm going to become a part of a church. When I get it all together, I'm going to come to God and become a part of the family of God. We don't come to God when we get it all together. We come to God because we can't get it all together. And it's by grace that God says, I don't care where you've been, I don't care what you've done, I love you, and and I invite you to the king's table because of, not Jonathan, but listen, because of Jesus. Because God laid on Him who knew no sin, the sins of us all, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That there might be a reconnect. That everything that Adam lost in the fall is brought back to us through Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Unconditional love. Unmerited favor. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But it is for Christ's sake. The sake of the covenant in His blood. What was Mephibosheth's response in verse 6? Obviously, he came with great humility, perhaps fear and trembling. But he said, I am... Your servant. What else could he say? I am your servant. And that's the humility that we come to God with. Not making demands, but here I am, Lord. I am your servant. I'm turning from sin and self. And everything I have is nothing, but you are everything. That's the only thing left for many of us in this room this morning to reconnect. Some of you have not connected with Christ for the first time. There's never been a time where you said, you know what, I'm in a desolate, desperate place in life and I'm ready to turn from that let go and respond to the king's invitation and come to the king's table. Others of you have experienced what it's like to be royalty and you've drifted. And you need to reconnect. It's by grace. For Christ's sake. Some of you have other relationships in your life that you need to have restored. And you're like, well, when they get it all together, we can restore this relationship. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. The grace God extends to us, He expects us to extend to others. What's the result of all of that? The compassion of the king. This divine invitation getting in on the grace of God. Look at verse 9. He summoned Saul's attendant. He says, I've given to your master's grandson all that belong to him. You, your sons, your servants, are to work the ground for him. You're to bring the crops to, so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, let me tell you where he's going to be. He'll always be at my table. Go to verse 11, the second part there. Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. And when we come to faith in Christ, all of the blessings that are bestowed to Christ the Son of God, we become joint heirs with Him in the kingdom. Mephibosheth's young son Micah, also living at Ziba's house with Mephibosheth's servancy, See, when we respond to the grace of God that's extended to us, others get in on the blessings. Those that we influence get in on the blessings as well. Now let's look at this spiritually. Turn back again to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Remember, we read the first part of this already. But I kind of left you under the wrath of God because of our sinful condition. But verse 4 says, "...but God who is abundant in mercy because of His great love..." See, put all that together. His mercy and His love. The Kessid of God made us alive with the Messiah. Even though we were dead in trespasses, by grace are you saved. He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him, with Jesus in the heavens, so that in the coming age... For the coming ages, He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace and His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be a child of the covenant. It's a beautiful picture. I like what Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. We'll turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and we'll close with this. Passage. Beginning in verse 22. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion. Like Jonathan, right? Or like Mephibosheth. You have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gatherings, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven to God who is the judge of all to the spirits of righteousness are spirits of righteous people made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. to the, the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood. See, the covenant that Jonathan and David had was as beautiful as any friendship could ever be, but Jesus' blood does speak a better word. That's the relationship that we have with Christ. I find it interesting, this passage closes with a reminder that Mephibosheth is still crippled. Now I realize spiritually we are made whole in Christ. But I think Mephibosheth was reminded while he was at the king's table of his condition constantly without the king that none of the blessings he was experiencing could be experienced apart from the king. He couldn't make up his mind that he was going to step out on his own because he knew what that got him into. And we need to be reminded, those of us who have already entered into the covenant, we have by faith trusted in what Christ did for us on Calvary's cross We need to be reminded constantly that we are nothing without Him. We have nothing without Him. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?